North Carolina's Outer Banks offers visitors everything from theater, wildlife, and history to some down-home cooking in a relaxed, nearly unspoiled setting. The Lost Colony, America's longest-running outdoor symphonic drama, celebrates the birth of the first English child born in America. And her name is Virginia Dare, and you're standing in Dare County. Owen's Restaurant has been serving fine food and hospitality to legions of Outer Banks visitors since 1946. Clara Peaches Woodard shares her family's appreciation for history and cuisine. A 1937 act of Congress established Pea Island National Wildlife Refuge as a place for wildlife and waterfowl conservation. Before the Coast Guard came to be, the U.S. Life Saving Service protected the shores. The Chickamacomico Life Saving Station Museum holds some compelling stories. So the ocean's on fire. Um, Captain Drosher on the U-boat, meanwhile, periscopes up. He goes, whoa, I sunk two ships. Join us as we explore North Carolina's Outer Banks and visit Thailand and Indonesia on World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Later in the hour, before the farm-to-table and locally sourced movement in food and cuisine, there was Owen's Restaurant leading the way. As a member of the fourth generation of Owen's Restaurant Tours, Clara Woodard, also known as Peaches, shares her family's appreciation for food and history. With 13 miles of beach fronting the Atlantic and nearly 6,000 acres of dunes, marshes, ponds, creeks, and bays, Pea Island National Wildlife Refuge is a wildlife oasis. Cindy Heffley of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service will help us appreciate the magic of Pea Island. One of the most comprehensive life-saving station sites still in existence, the Chickamacomico Life-Saving Station Historic Site and Museum is a unique living history museum. The museum's John Griffiths shares some of the inspiring stories of the men who make Chickamacomico legendary. Plus, we'll visit Thailand and Indonesia in between our stops on North Carolina's Outer Banks. But first, The Lost Colony, America's longest-running outdoor symphonic drama, celebrates the birth of the first English child born in America, Virginia Dare. The theater CEO, Bill Komen, takes us behind the scenes of this epic drama that has drawn theatergoers every year since 1937. There was actually three colonies, or three voyages, to the New World. Um, of course, the Spanish were already down in Florida, and uh, Sir Walter Raleigh said, you know, if we want to, to, to be a part of this country and this opportunity, we, we need to send our own out here. So the first group he sent was, um, was Amadis and Barlow, and they came and explored, and they came right to the spot. And, you know, they were looking to see what was around. Well, so good reports so far, and, and John White with him. John White was, a, was an illustrator. His name will be impor more important in a minute. But then, uh, then w the second, second venture was Ralph Lane. So there's a story about him giving a King, uh, King Wingina a, a silver vessel and then later accusing him of stealing it and killing him, decapitating him. So that kind of set the, the Native Americans on edge as far as the relationship with the English, <laughs> needless to say. But Chief Mantio remained friends of the English. In fact, Chief Mantio and Chief Wankis, we call it Wankis, if you go to the city, it's one cheese, but Wankis actually went with that first group that came, they went back to England and they spent a couple years there. So Ralph Lane again kind of screwed the relations with the, with the natives that were here. But in the meantime, they were getting a, a, a true colony 
together, men, women, and children, 117, and they came here again. Now, of course, the myth is that, that Sir Walter Raleigh came here. He never came here, okay? That's, let, me, let me clarify that. But so, so this was uh, 1587. So the first group came in 1584, 1585, and then 1587 was when what we refer to as the Lost Colony showed up. And again, men, women, and children, they got here, didn't have a lot of supplies. And again, John White became governor of this colony. Uh, John White had a daughter, Eleanor Dare, who's also in the show. And uh, she gave birth to the first English child that was born in the New World. And her name was Virginia Dare. And you're standing in Dare County. And of course, she, she said, we're gonna name all the land that you've discovered Virginia in honor of me, the Virgin Queen. So um, we, we, uh, the Virginia name didn't stick. But the first, first colony, or rather the last colony, was actually supposed to go up to Chesapeake. Well, they had a captain who was, uh, was not Spanish, but he was Portuguese, so they potentially thought that he allied themselves with them. And he refused to take them up to Chesapeake. They got here, and he said, this is as far as I'm taking you. Well, they agreed to go here, because there was already forts and stuff. There was, there was buildings here. Um, but uh, one thing I missed was the, the second, uh, when they went back, the second group, they left 15 soldiers. When the third group got here, soldiers were gone. They found one skeleton, but ultimately, those soldiers were gone. So, um, but they said, ah, oh, we got this fort, we got this stuff, let's, let's go here. But we didn't have a lot of supplies. So they sent John White back to England almost immediately to get supplies. And uh, he went back. Well, as it turns out, he was trying to come back and there was a storm and this and that. And then ultimately it took him three years to get back, primarily because England was about to go to war with Spain right. and the queen wouldn't let the ships go. So, um, that was the big the big problem. So he came back three years later and the colony was gone. And inscribed on a tree was CRO and inscribed on the walls of the fort were Croatoan. Well, the Croatoan were the Indians that were south of here in Hatteras. Um, and so they were Mantio's people and they thought, well, that's good. And so they were also supposed to give a sign that they would inscribe a cross if they left under duress. And there was no cross with the, with the CRO or with that. And that's... That's all we know of the colonists. He came, he looked, he saw that, the storms were coming up, he couldn't go down to Hatteras, Croatoan, to discover if they were still there, so he went back. And it wasn't for several years later that they came back again and still could find no trace of them. Of course, there's been a lot in the news about, you know, we're digging here, we're finding this here, maybe they went 50 miles into Bertie County, maybe they went down to Hatteras, maybe. That's kind of the story at the nutshell. So. Our story is 80 years ago, we started doing this show. Uh, there were leaders here, and there's a little poster or a little picture we just passed that were locals who said, oh, you know, we should commemorate the 350th anniversary of the birth of Virginia Dare. So they, uh, there was a movie that came out in 1921 uh, about this, uh, the story, that was filmed locally. And... Um, so that kind of spurred some interest, and, and uh, so they hired Paul Green, who was a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright from North Carolina, and uh, they hired him to write it. And so he did, and, you know, it was going to be this pageant at the time, and really no one, no one was quite sure. Hey, how are you folks? No one was quite sure really how long it would last, um, but it was successful. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was here the first year. Um, it opened on July 4th, 1937, and then he came on August 18th. And he gave a speech somewhere over there 
And so I got to assume a lot of these trees weren't here. And then he drove his car and parked it up at the top of the theater because, you know, he couldn't walk, as you all know. So the show started 80 years ago, and, and we've, uh, we've run every year except for four years, which were during World War II, at which time there was a whole blackout on the coast because there were German U-boats off the coast, and um, so they blacked out everything. And, and uh, so we had four years we didn't run. We have different groups that are in the show. And I say groups, I mean different uh, types of people. <laughs> we have um, a choir, which is about 12. We have about 12 dancers. We have the principals in the show. And then we have what we lovingly refer to as our actors technicians. So they're actors, they're in the show at night. They may have a small role, they may do this, they may do that. But at this juncture, they're helping get the set up and getting a lot of the fixtures done. Now, during the show as well, they're hauling some of the scenery back and forth. So when you first come in, the scenery is set for the Native Americans, and we see a dance, and we see them in their place, and then we see the Red Soldiers come in in that first encounter with Amadeus and Barlow. And uh, then we have, have a Ralph Lane scene where Wingina, again, is, is killed, and then... And then the scene slowly unwraps so that so there's all this greenery on this scene that you're looking at now it slowly comes off see they're working on the greenery on the stage mm -hmm. and then uh, it reveals this the fort fort raleigh this is the waterside theater it was where the first shows were at one point when the theater was built it, it housed three thousand people in here and they were all benches um, and there's some benches you can still discover underneath like where that scenery is where that guy is there's benches underneath that which i recently discovered um, we seat about 1500 people we do about 74 shows a year so it plays monday through saturday from from end of may till late august and the reason we have those times when people ask that well i mean if you look at these kids they're i say kids they're college kids primarily that's a ton of our staff are from universities. They come from all over the country, but a lot of them, maybe the majority, come from North Carolina, um, Eastern Carolina University. We get Virginia as well, um, a variety of places that these po folks will venture from. How many uh, actors are yeah. involved in their production? Yeah, that's a good question. We have about 80, and so the full company is going to be about 120 people. So I've got people backstage and props and in costume we go in the costume shop i got 10 people that work in there or maybe 12 um and you know scenery stage management all those other support positions make the full company about 120 people does the production change in any way from year to year given that the story is basically the same do you right, emphasize right. different things for different seasons well it, it does change um i mean we're we're pretty true to paul green's script but with each director, and there's only been eight in the history, but they're liable to put their own, uh, you know, fingerprint on it. And uh, but we, we we've changed some things. Last year, for the first time, we had we have a historian or a narrator that walks around. Last year, we made him uh, into a park ranger in honor of the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service, and it really worked out very well. So we're doing that again this year. Um, so he's. He comes in and he's in a full park ranger uniform and he speaks about, you know, transitions and gets people in and out of the play and the story. You're listening to World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. 
We're exploring the show considered to be the precursor to the modern American Broadway musical, The Lost Colony, with the theater's CEO, Bill Coleman. We met a choral group on our tour of the theater, and they treated us to a performance. And I'm Jordan Prescott. I'm the associate music director. I'm originally from Greenville, North Carolina, and I just graduated from East Carolina University. I'm going to Peabody Conservatory in the fall. Um, so we're going to uh, sing something for you from the second act of the show. Uh, this is the Lord's Prayer, which we sing right before our big battle scene. Uh, so it's one of the, the hardest things that they sing, so I'm glad they're getting a chance to perform it in front of people. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we shot and we launch into a huge battle scene. <laughs> so this is we come to the show. We're about to have a rehearsal. Thank you so much. You go to your prologue have, uh, this is the main stage, as you can tell, but this is what we refer to as the queen stage mm -hmm. because this is where the queen always is. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the queen's interior in the second act that they're assembling right now. Mm -hmm. And then we call that one the Indian stage because that's where Wingina and we see those folks over in that part of, of what we do. So it's spread out, you know, it's a 360 degree 3D show. Our costume and production designer is William Ivy Long. Well, he grew up here. Yeah. This will be his 47th year involved in the show. Any break other from the sun. notable alumni? Yeah, um, Andy Griffith okay. is perhaps the most famous. Uh, Andy truly started his acting career here and then retired to Manio before he passed away. In fact, he's uh, about a mile and a half down the road. Um, Steve Kazee was recently in the show. He won a, won a Tony for his performance in Once. Um, and then uh, there's, there's other folks that are maybe more semi-famous than famous. Um, so this is the soundstage. Uh, we call it the soundstage theater even. This building was built in the 60s and was primarily used as rehearsal space and even storage space. We did a restoration of it about five years ago and we added air conditioning and you know different flooring and the windows were all replaced and everything so we use this building for a lot more now so during the summer we'll have a, a children's show that'll happen in here uh, on two days out of the week we'll have a character dinner which is a lot of fun what what that is exactly what it sounds like uh, people will come early come to dinner and then uh, we'll have characters in costume that will come in and mingle with them and also we'll have an opportunity for them to try on costumes while they're here. Um, we'll have props on all the tables and just a real experience. And then after they, uh, and the choir will come in and sing, but after that happens, then they take a backstage tour. And so that's a, it's a real uh, enhanced experience. And that, will that Pe be year round? 
it's, it's just during the show. Just while the show. Yeah, open. just while the show's open. Right. So those those things go on, and then we also have uh, children's summer camp, theater camp, that happens in here. So we'll have about three, four weeks of camps that'll happen throughout the summer for different age groups um, as they come in, as you know, older and younger. And then we have a, a, an academy, which is the oldest kids of all, and so. We do that, and again, all, all those things I just described are things that are uh, cast with the regular cast, so we give them another opportunity to work a little bit. Um, and then the other thing that happens is there's a PTW, which is a professional theater workshop, and we'll actually bring in uh, maybe people from New York, maybe casting directors, maybe a variety of people that have worked in the business, maybe alum that have had things to do. And then also what will happen is on uh, Saturday nights, about four times or five times throughout the summer, the cast will do performances for each other. And they'll do a variety of different shows, typically ones that have a lot of uh, teenage angst in them is what I like <laughs> to say. Um, so, but they're primarily for other cast members. But it's a chance for, for example, somebody in the costume shop to get on stage or somebody in the cast to design costumes or whatever. They get a real chance to do other things besides what they normally would do. Are there any children in the play? Yes, yes. there are. And the, and the children would all be locals. So we have uh, auditions and they'll come and we probably have about a dozen that are in the play. Some have done it before and some you know, are first timers. Anywhere from eight years old to 14. Um, and then one unique thing that happens as well, on August 18th, which is Virginia Dare's birthday, then the, the baby in the play, we put real babies in. To learn more about The Lost Colony, visit thelostcolony.org. We'll also have a link for that website on this show page at worldfootprints.com. In this destination spotlight, known for its temples and hospitality, we discover what Thailand offers at the Adventure Travel Expo. Thailand is in Southeast Asia. It's surrounded by Myanmar, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Malaysia at, at the, in the south. Thailand is, is very beautiful, and what captures people to go to Thailand? First of all, the beauty of the country and the Thai hospitality. The nickname of Thailand is the land of smile, so that is the thing that people always remember. We are one of the countries that people like to go back, and what that tell you? It tell you that because they not only they enjoy what they experience, but because they love the hospitality of the Thai people that given to them when they visit the first time. So that's why they're going back. There's more to Thailand outside of Bangkok, and so where should people go? Well, first of all, Bangkok is a must uh, destination to go anyway because it's the capital of Thailand and uh, a few places that I want to mention about Bangkok is that you have to visit the Royal Grand Palace so if you watched the movie The King and I before in the movie it's a replicate of the real one and that is the Royal Grand Palace and in that area we also have the uh, Temple of Reclining Buddha the Temple of Dawn across the river uh, these are places that I would not want anybody who visit Thailand to miss. Apart from that, uh, we have Chiang Mai, which is located in the north. Chiang Mai is known to be the place where all the handicrafts are made and very rich in culture. Great food, 
uh, and elephant experience. That is one of the activity that people love to go to Chiang Mai for because they want to see what the elephant's life is about, how uh, how they live, and they can interact with the elephant. Uh, also, soft adventure in Chiang Mai, they can do the zip lining, which is so much fun. Uh, water rafting in the bamboo, uh, in the bamboo, so it's quite fun to do. Uh, apart from that, the temples. I mean, Thailand is a Buddhist land, so uh, everywhere you go, you will see temples everywhere. restaurant has been serving fine food and hospitality to legions of Outer Banks visitors since 1946. Clara Woodard, also known as Peaches, shares her family's appreciation for history and cuisine. Peaches, give us um, a little bit of a history of this restaurant, and, and I'll tell you my first impression when, when we walked up and I took a photograph of the outside. I thought, oh, you know, nice family style restaurant. And then I walked inside and I was blown away by the antiquities uh, throughout. Give us, tell us where we are and why, why it's decorated the way it is and just the backstory. Well, this is home, you know, for a family. We all grew up here. Um, my grandparents started it in 1946 in this location. Actually, they had a hot dog stand in Manio across the bridge um, they, they started in 1932 and um, they moved here in 46 and um, had two children Bobby Owens and Clara Owens and um, uh, her husband died when my mom was four so she had a restaurant and a little motel court that she ran as a single mom you know with her son and her daughter and um, it was it was our home, you know, we had all meals here and got dropped off from school here and she did three meals a day, breakfast, lunch and dinner, and started out mainly as um, feeding the fishermen at Jeanette's Pier, because it was just, in those days, Sam and Amy's and Owen's the little pier, and then um, um, there was one motel here, Sea Hotel, and that was pretty much it at the center of the beach. So it was mainly, you know, geared towards feeding the fishermen. And, and how has it grown over the years? Because this is not a fisherman's <laughs> haunt anymore. It's really just evolved, you know, over the years with, you know, all of everybody's input, you know, and changing taste. And um, as Dare County grew, um, my aunt, Sarah Owens, she worked for the Tourist Bureau in the very beginning days of of that. She was um, the right-hand person to Acock Brown, who was the first director of the Tourist Bureau. Mm -hmm. So she worked there for years and helped bring people to the Outer Banks and, you know, just made everybody love love our area and really, you know, grow it to where it is today. Mm -hmm. And my understanding, this is the um, oldest family-owned restaurant in the entire state of North Carolina. Is that correct? And we've been told that, yes, in the same location, same family. Mm -hmm. um, for 71 years. And what generation now? Are we on the third generation of um, Owens? I'm the third. My son's the fourth. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, uh, did we meet your son tonight? He is not here yet. Okay. He's home for the summer. He goes to UNC Chapel Hill 
He's a junior and he's starting um, next Monday for the summer. Okay. He just finished his exams and wanted to take a few days off just to relax before he started working. <laughs> now the, the dishes that um, our group had tonight, oh, many of us had the same, you know, soft shell crab, um, uh, seafood platters. Is this all locally sourced um, food that, that you use? Yes, our um, soft shells come from Collington. We've been buying soft shells from Endurance Seafood, um, Kissy and Murray Bridges for, for years, 20, 30 years. So um, we have a great relationship um, with them in soft shell season. Our fish is local. Um, we always try and buy from the local fishermen. Mm-hmm. Um, crab meat comes from Madame Mesquite. Our shrimps, North Carolina shrimp. So we we really try to to support the local fishing and community. So talk a little bit about. I mentioned at the top, you know, all of the um, antiquities in um, in this in this very large building. I mean, it's very um, from the outside is very deceiving. What, what do you have in here, and where do, where do they come from? Uh, my mom has mainly collected the oyster plates and the fish plates. Um, she started doing that back in the early 70s. And um, a lot of them are Limoges and, you know, complete sets that she's just, you know, researched. And now people come to her with their oyster plates and fish plates. We've got some um, oyster spoons. and But um, they all have a different story and, you know, we're... So it's like it's almost like a mini museum when when you want. <laughs> yeah, um, we have um, a real nautical heritage here and the life-saving um, stations that are all around us. Um, we have Coast Guard jackets and Merchant Marine coats um, and Navy jackets. People have donated to us that have been in the service and wanted their jackets displayed here, so we hang them up. You know, and um, my aunt and uncle um, collected a lot of the Coast Guard memorabilia that we have in here. Mm-hmm. They all have you know, we have old log books and um, pictures and lots of history. Lots of history. Yeah. Yeah. So our um, our kind server uh, told us that one of your specialties is something I'm going to enjoy right after. I, talk to you the 14 layer cake Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's made by a lady um in manio um she's her recipe came from her mother and she was from wanchi's and it's the same recipe that they've had in the family for several generations she uses her her mother's cake pans and um it's 14 layer totally from scratch cake that she makes for us and has made for uh, 15 20 years and it's one of our, you know, favorite desserts here. What are some of your uh, other signature dishes that you uh, that you you enjoy? Um, hmm. Our steaks are very good. Uh, oysters, Owens are always a favorite. Um, they're sautéed Eastern Shore oysters with um, garlic and lemon and butter. People really like those. Um, crab remick is um, our crab meat mixed with herbs and spices and topped with cheese and baked. Oh, yeah, I know. Okay. <laughs> okay. I think we tasted a little bit of ever, almost all of your signature yeah. dishes, which our is wonderful. Crab cakes are my grandmother's recipe, and it's just basic, simple, you know, no filler, um, fresh crab meat, you know. 
So, so this historic restaurant uses um, recipes that have been shared throughout generations. Yes. A lot of them don't change at all. It's the same recipe. How special is that? Thank you so much, Peaches, for hosting us tonight. Thank you. Appreciate it. We'll continue our visit to North Carolina's Outer Banks in a moment. If you want more information on Owen's Restaurant, visit owensrestaurant.com. We'll also have a link to the restaurant on this show page at worldfootprints.com. You're listening to World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Just ahead, with 13 miles of beach fronting the Atlantic and nearly 6,000 acres of dunes, marshes, ponds, creeks, and bays, Pea Island Wildlife National Refuge is a wildlife oasis. At the midpoint of the Atlantic Flyway for migratory birds, Pea Island's diverse bird population makes it a must-see for birding enthusiasts. But it's not just for the birds. On our trip there, we spent some time with the sea turtle, Cindy Heffley of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service will help us appreciate the magic of Pea Island. One of the most comprehensive life-saving stations still in existence, the Chickamacomico Life-Saving Station Historic Site and Museum is a unique living history museum. The only one of its kind in North Carolina, this Outer Banks Museum houses artifacts and teaches the history of the predecessor to today's U.S. Coast Guard. The museum's John Griffin shares some of the inspiring stories of the men who make Chickamacomico legendary. Plus, if you want to travel deeper and uncover hidden gems like the Lost Colony, meet people like Peaches Woodard of Owen's Restaurant in the Outer Banks, or explore some interesting places like Thailand, visit us at worldfootprints.com. Act of Congress established the Pea Island National Wildlife Refuge on the Outer Banks Hatteras Island as a place for wildlife and waterfowl conservation. We'll explore this important mission with Cindy Heffley of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. When you look out here, you'll see these ponds. These ponds were actually out here before this was a refuge. The folks that used to own this property were waterfowl hunters. Um, we do allow hunting on some national wildlife refuges, not on this one. This one, in, in addition to the property and about 20,000 acres of water out in the sound is all protected. No, no waterfowl hunting because this is a waterfowl sanctuary. So the waterfowl hunters that own this area, they, would, they had the ponds that would help to attract 
waterfowl in um, for hunting purposes. Um, as I mentioned, we do have hunting on refuges. It's one of our big six. That was um, 1997. The Refuge Improvement Act was established to allow people to do things on refuges that are compatible um, because they found a lot of, you know, national parks get a lot of attention and a lot more funding because people are allowed to be on them more. Um, so we do have uh, wildlife photography, environmental education, interpretation, hunting, fishing, and environmental education and interpretation. That is it. Um, so, so with those, um, as it's as it fits, like I said, as it fits the um, the mission of a refuge, things are open. Um, we don't allow windsurfing. We don't allow um, drones. There's certain things we don't allow um, that might be allowed on other areas. But so when we this was established. Um, as I mentioned, these ponds um, were already here, and there's dikes that go out. You can actually walk around this whole, this area here, our north pond, is open to the public as far as walking around it, bird watching, things like that. The other areas are all closed because they're there for the wildlife. Um, of course, the beach is open to the public. But um, the, with the dunes, another important thing on, on Pea Island especially, this whole dune system was put in in the 30s, 1930s, during the Civilian Conservation Corps um, era. And so these are all artificial dunes. The dunes were built partly to protect the road. It wasn't a main highway back then in the 30s, but it, they were put up to try to stop the ocean from coming close. Okay. I mean, it, it definitely, um, Highway 12 has been moved many times. If you look at some old aerial uh, photos, um, the highway was farther out where the ocean is now, um, past there. Um, Cindy, as we're, oh, sorry, as we're, as we're walking, can you describe some of the active conservation efforts that you have going on right now? Sure. You, okay, definitely. Yes. This is something fairly new. Um, this, this whole whale was on our beach and um, one of our volunteers actually you know suggested maybe we bring it over so it's it's a really neat uh we don't normally take the bones and things off of the beach we normally just let nature take its course um, if as far as sea turtles sometimes we'll get sea turtles uh, that wash up that are either dead or injured and we put a large orange x on them when we process them we just leave them lay out there for conservation, um, you can't see it a lot anymore. You can see it a little bit. See how this is all burnt? We do prescribed burning here, and most refuges do. Um, and we burn it every three years if we have the opportunity. It's during certain times of the year, um, not during ground nesting season, or, you know, it has to be a certain amount of humidity, a certain amount of wind. And our, our team will actually go out and they'll burn areas that have a lot of invasive plants or just to get some of the plants burnt so that the other plants that are underground that can't uh, sprout out because of all the other plants that are kind of taking up their nutrients. We've never had an osprey nest on it, but it's, we've just the other week, the folks that work in there, the volunteers, they saw, we had bald eagles out here and a bald eagle brought a, a nutria 
which is a, oh, yeah, a rat, a water rat, mm -hmm. um, and it was eating it right there. So we have scopes in the front there, and it was a wonderful viewing opportunity to see a, a bald eagle eating right there. But um, we do have some osprey uh, platforms on the refuge that they do use, but that one's just, for whatever reason, has never been used for that purpose. But with the prescribed burning, um, you'll see that all all up and down 12. Um, we actually, our team helps the Park Service to do theirs. And it's just a wonderful thing because when these plants do start coming up, a lot of them were ones, like I mentioned, that weren't able to, to grow before because there were so many other uh, roots and other plants that were taking their nutrients in the sun and things. There's a four-mile walk that you can do around this whole pond um, when you're finished at the north end of it you ha either have to go onto the beach or onto the, the side of the road but you can actually um, walk around the whole thing um, sometimes of course the biting flies get nasty if the wind's blowing a certain way it's not too bad but then other times it can be pretty bad and we have a turtle pond there's a nice uh, snapping turtle walking there they'll, they'll come across they hang out in here and then they'll go over to our turtle pond. And that's like an average size. We've had huge ones that look like tanks walking across. For more on Pea Island National Wildlife Refuge, visit this show page at worldfootprints.com for a direct link to the Fish and Wildlife Service. destination spotlight, the cultural and linguistic diversity of Indonesia comes to light at the Adventure Travel Expo. Indonesia is very easy to find in the world map. It is in the middle of Asia and Australia. When you see the islands, you know, it is Indonesia. So it is very easy to find in the map, world map. Yeah, we uh, consist of, you know, 17,000 islands, you know, <laughs> and then you know, the, in the uh, Javanese, uh, you know, the Javanese people compose the, uh, the, the uh, majority, 60% of the population is in Java. And then, you know, in this island we call the Java, uh, Javanese people 
who speaks their own language. This is Javanese language. So you, you uh, in, in Java, we have Central Java, East Java, and West Java. In West Java, they speak Sundanese language. Yeah. So we have something like, uh, you know, 300 more languages, you know, uh, which, uh, you know, people are using in, uh, you know, from the Sumatra Island to uh, the, you know, the Papua, you know. <laughs> so a lot of islands, a lot of, a lot of ethnic groups, you know, a lot of people combine one becoming Indonesia. And of course, the most popular island is Bali. Bali, uh, B- B- Bali is, uh, you know, for the you know, more than 4 million people are there. This is the popular tourist destination. Even sometimes people know more Bali rather than, oh, where is Indonesia? Bali, I know. <laughs> but Bali is a small part of Indonesia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's very interesting because many people know about Bali. And now, now they are coming to know, oh, I have to go beyond Bali. <laughs> you know, they're exploring beyond Bali. Even we have in North Sumatra, the Lake Toba, which is the, you know, uh, uh, tens of thousands of years back, it was a crater, you know, from the mountain. Yeah, explosion of mountain become, uh, you know, lake, you know, in the North Sumatra. We have the Batak, we have the Padang people, we have the Kalimantan, the Borneo. In Borneo, we shared with, you know, uh, some of the ASEAN countries like Malaysia. One big island, the, the biggest, in fact, in Indonesia. And then there we shared uh, the, the island with Malaysia and also Brunei, Darussalam. So World Heritage Site, you know, you have the Borobudur, the largest Buddhist temple uh, in the world. It's there in Indonesia, in, in central Java. You, you have Prambanan, the Hindu temple. Before the Coast Guard came to be, the U.S. Life Saving Service protected the shores. The Chickamacamaco Life Saving Station Museum in the Outer Banks holds some compelling stories as told by the museum's John Griffith. Established in the 1870s, um, ships sunk. A lot of ships sunk. One-third of the ships at sea sunk. Seamen, little, little factoids to, to remember. Seamen didn't know how to swim. Knowing how to swim if you were an ocean-going person was considered um, really tempting fate. Swimmer in, in the United States in the late 40s, after World War II, the United States Navy decided that sailors needed to know how to swim. Prior to that, uh, even the Navy did not require people to learn how to swim. That's important because it means that anything that threatened you during a shipwreck was death because you couldn't swim. You couldn't stay afloat at all if you were a seaman. So, In the 1870s, um, Congress enacted um, the United States Life-Saving Service, and that station out there was built in 1874. It was the first station built in North Carolina. The Outer Banks is important to the Life-Saving Service because um, the waters out there could be called a choke point. The choke point is where all the traffic is. Um, because of the Gulf Stream, if you're out there, if you're going north-south, you want to pick up the Gulf Stream if you're a sailing vessel. Um, your maximum speed is probably 8 to 10 knots. Um, and if you get in the Gulf Stream, you can go an, an extra 2 knots. So this is significant. So everybody wants to be in the Gulf Stream. 
And when you go in the other direction, you don't want to be in the Gulf Stream. So what you do is you come close to shore. Well, that's trouble. Remember the safety equipment that was available on ships. You could have a sextant, which meant on a really clear night, you could tell where you were within about five miles. Think of a five-mile radius. That's a huge area. That's what you knew. You also had a piece of rope with a weight on it. You would drop the rope. It's deep enough. It ain't deep enough. So, a lot of shipwrecks along the coast of North Carolina, particularly right on this island, because all the ships on the eastern seaboard are going by right out there. So we had a station on this island every seven miles. Having established the life-saving service, the government then screwed it up by allowing the way you got a job as a surfman was to know someone. So if you were a tobacco farmer in the western part of North Carolina and had a ne'er-do-well son, um, he could be a surfman and stationed here. He didn't have to know anything about the ocean or surf or anything else. He had a job. And that ended up with a disaster. Hold on a minute. The disaster was the Huron. The Huron was a passenger ship carrying 147 people, all of whom died in a shipwreck two miles from a life-saving station with the lifesavers failing to respond. So Nast, the famous cartoonist, drew this cartoon and put it in Harper's Weekly, which basically says, what are you going to do? So the government hired a fellow named Sumner Kimball. And they said to Sumner Kimball, fix it. Do whatever you have to do. You have a blank check. Fix this. So Sumner Kimball fired everyone. And he said, if you're going to be a lifesaver on Cape Cod, you're going to be from Cape Cod. If you're going to be a lifesaver on the Jersey Shore, you're going to be from Jersey. If you're going to be a lifesaver on Hatteras Island, you're going to be a Hatteras Island kid. So. Um, this turned the entire service around, uh, and it became uh, very, very important. If you think about the economy of this island, a station every seven miles, seven people employed at each station, that's about 100 people with government jobs on an island where the only thing to do is fish and try to grow things in sand. So this was a very, very lucrative job. You're listening to World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We're exploring the historic Chickamacomico Life-Saving Station Museum. After spending time in the 1874 station, we walked across the grounds to the 1911 station. Come on in. The Coast Guard, in times of war, become part of the, under the auspices of the Department of the Navy. So this is now a Coast Guard station because they converted in 1915, um, but it's wartime, so technically they're under the auspices of the Department of the Navy. Leroy Midget is up in the tower of that building, and you can go up in the tower, um, and he knows that there's submarines out there because he's seen them. 
Captain Drosher goes to periscope level, looks up, goes, whoa, an oil tanker. That'd be a good target. So the oil tanker is the uh, British ship, British uh, tanker called the Merlot. The Merlot was carrying 68 tons of fuel oil that it's picked up in New Orleans and it's on its way to England. Think of 1918 towards the end of the war, England is starving for fuel oil. So this is really important. Perfect target for Captain Drosher. So he torpedoes the Merlot. What happens when you torpedo an oil tanker? Kaboom! Windows rattle all over the, all over the tri-village area. Um, they rattle in the tower, they rattle throughout the station. Leroy sees a plume of flames, yells down to his cousin, Captain John Allen Midget, we got a case. Um, Captain Midget goes up to the tower, looks out, says, holy mackerel. So they take this surf boat, and they bring it out to the water, and they launch it. I forgot to tell you, there had been a hurricane a couple of days before, so the ocean is angry. They launch it, they fail. They launch it again, they fail, they launch it again, they fail, they launch it a fourth time, and they make it out past the breakers. Um, this boat has an engine, it runs on naphtha fuel. That's like lighter fluid. Um, so once they get out past the breakers, they kick in the engine, putt, putt, putt along. They come across a lifeboat. Lifeboat is very different than a surfboat. Lifeboat is a boat on a ship that if I'm going to abandon ship, I get in a lifeboat. So the light, I get, they come across a lifeboat, Captain Allen, John Allen Midget, Captain Johnny. Captain Johnny hails the lifeboat. What's the situation? Turns out the lifeboat has Captain Williams, who's the captain of the Merlot. He reports, I am the captain of the Merlot. There are three, there are two other lifeboats. I have 17 men with me. There are two other lifeboats. I think one of them got caught in our rigging as it left the ship, and I think it overturned. I don't know about the third lifeboat. Captain Johnny says to Captain Williams, do not try to make it to shore. You will die. Wait here, I'll be back. Now, Captain Williams wisely says, huh, a guy that just launched a, a, a surfboat in this kind of ocean is telling me I'm going to die if I try to make it. I'm going to wait right here. So he does. Um, and putt-putting along, the surfboat goes further out, seven miles, five miles out, they come across the Merlot. The Merlot's in pieces, the ocean's on fire. Oil floats. So the ocean's on fire. Um, Captain Drosher on the U-boat, meanwhile, periscopes up, he goes, whoa, I sunk two ships, because part of the Merlot's there and the other part's over there. He thinks he sunk two ships and puts that in his log. Um, Subsequently, that ship, U-133 was captured and put on display as part of the bond effort. Um, but that's another story. That's later. Um, so putt-putting along, um, they're out at the flames, ocean's on fire, Merlot's in pieces. Um, they see a small opening, so they putt-putt in. Um, and they come across a lifeboat that's overturned. 
Men are clinging to it. The ocean's on fire. They can't be up like this, they'll die. So they're underwater, coming up, grabbing a breath, go back underwater, clinging to the lifeboat. They can't swim. So they pull seven of them out of the water. Sit them right there. Okay, we're done. Um, let's get out of here. Nope, third lifeboat. Captain Johnny says, uh, why wouldn't the third lifeboat have tried to make it to shore but apparently they didn't. Let's figure that the wind is blowing that way, the current's blowing that way, the way it's going, they're probably that way. So they begin to row. They row because the fuel oil has all evaporated because of the heat. So four trips, um, because we're not gonna try to, we're not gonna try to beach a lifeboat in this kind of surf, we're going to put everyone in this boat because this is the one that will successfully do the waves. So they rescued 42 out of 51 crew members. So the loss of life at Chickamacomico Station from 1874 through the merger with the Coast Guard, through countless hurricanes, through World War One, through World War II, through 1954 when it was decommissioned was zero. Um, that's the story. For more on the Chickamacomico Lifesaving Station Museum and upcoming shows, visit chickamacomico.com. That's spelled C-H-I-C-A-M-A-C-O-M-I-C-O.com. Look for a link on this show page at worldfootprints.com. first trip to the Outer Banks. How about you? Mine as well. Even though I've spent some time in other parts of North Carolina on the ocean, but that was the first for us. And what I was left with is that the Outer Banks are unique in terms of beach resorts and beach destinations in that it's not developed in kind of the way that you think of beach resorts with a whole bunch of high rises and things like that. So there's something that's rather pristine rather natural about it that's refreshing right and it really made the beach and that entire environment special i really appreciated the rich history that we found well there's two things that really stood out for me one was the wright brothers memorial Mm -hmm. and it was interesting to know that the flight did not take place in kitty hawk the transmission of the flight took place and so in kitty hawk was just a couple of miles up from where they actually uh, started their flight. Um, But just to see that memorial and the hill on which they actually launched Mm -hmm. their first flight. And the other thing that I really, really enjoyed, it has nothing to do with history, but a lot to do with food, 
Um, I enjoyed those donuts. Duck donuts. <laughs> Duck donuts. That was my first time having them, and I've seen them only one time since. They are delicious. And then, of course, uh, Owen's Restaurant, you know, just the, the beautiful food that was served there. But there's a lot that we saw and enjoyed that we didn't really even talk about on the show. You know, the thing about the Outer Banks is that it blends a lot of history, as uh, you said, and it really didn't become a destination until the 1950s, and so it hasn't been on the map that long in terms of a place Mm. to spend time, and you've got a range of housing options there, but what I like about it is that you can enjoy so much there, and if you want to have and you know have a traditional beach type experience, you can have that. If you're into history, there are lots of places to go. Beautiful vistas. If you're into nature, you've got a lot of things that are accessible to you. And if you want to do adventure stuff, you can go gliding, as uh, we saw at the state park there. So there is so much to do there, uh, and it has so much appeal for so many. Yeah, and speaking of gliding, I was actually interested in hang gliding. Um, Were you? I'm not that crazy about (laughs) uh, wanting to just hang from a glider, uh, in all honesty. But it did look like a lot of fun. Yeah. and you they, know. they didn't take off from a very high sand hill. So I think it would have been uh, safe and just a, a real quick, fun adventure. And going back to history, the drama, The Lost Colony, I was really surprised at how Broadway-like that production was. I mean, the people who work there, you know, they have individuals from New York and other places around the world who actually come there and work on the set. They work on costumes. And, you know, it was just amazing. And, and the ship that they actually set on wheels with the backdrop of the ocean giving a 3D image, you know, of the, a boat sailing. I mean, it just very, very powerful. And, and of course, I was really pleased to meet a lot of the folks in the course, especially my guy from Detroit. Yeah, they have students from all over the country, Detroit, the Carolinas, uh, and so it, it, it really does provide a, a unique experience for those who are in theater and performance, set design, costume design, and so forth, so mm-hmm. uh, kudos to uh, the Lost Colony. And then, of course, you know, the conservation efforts on Pea Island Wildlife Refuge. I really enjoy just walking through that. And <laughs> funnily enough, I know how you feel about snakes, dear. We actually passed one, and I'm glad that you didn't see that. Me too. <laughs> so... As we close, we'd like to leave you with the words of American author, novelist, and writer James A. Michener, whose many books explore the history and culture of people and places around the world. If you reject the food, ignore the customs, fear the religion, and avoid the people, you might better stay home. Thank you very much for inviting us into your homes and sharing the joy of travel with us. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing our next journey with you on World Footprints. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award-winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes, and more. 
visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com, you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.